0: Hey, (laughs) how are you? How are you doing?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. I, you know, I haven't talked to you in a while. I know when we met, well, we kind of like met during quarantine. We have Mm -hmm. a ton of mutual friends, probably more than we even realized at this point.
1: Yeah. Well, I know Jason Collins is a mutual friend. And then um, who else did I see that we were connected to? I know we have one.
0: we have a few because i was a photographer at all the comedy clubs and you're obviously a comedian and so i yeah i think every time i see you post a photo with somebody i'm like oh we have that person in common that person in common <laughs> like adam hunter um
1: oh yeah i love that.
0: yeah uh we he used to have before he was kind of ahead of his time i don't know if you remember he had a um like a show on youtube or something it was kind of like a podcast uh but before podcasts were a thing it was almost like a little a little talk show and i was on one of his episodes like years ago this is like over 10 years ago
1: yeah adam's definitely ahead of his time i've known adam for a long time um and he he's just like you know he's one of those self-made hardworking. Mm -hmm. doesn't wait for agents to you know pick up the phone and call him he's Mm -hmm. very much a hustler and you know makes the outgoing calls and he's a hell of a joke writer and comic on top of that i've been performing with him for so long and he's just he's probably one of the best ones out there right now
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah. y'all are very talented i i feel very blessed to like have seen I don't know so many comics like start from the very beginning and like I was telling the story when I had Jason on here um a while back and we were talking about like when I met Chris D'Elia for the first time and he had just started stand-up and I had just started doing photography and we um we were kind of like starting at the same time at these comedy clubs. And it's just funny, like seeing him and kind of how he grew. Um, It's just really cool because I would see all you guys and go, okay, he's going to be, and it's like, I was pretty right on about everybody. I'm like, these guys are going to be amazing. And then the ones that I'm like, "Uh, I don't know, like you never hear. Um, But yeah, you guys are all amazing. Um, So I love you know I was talking to you because you started doing during quarantine these Instagram lives which is you asked me to do one which thank you for that I had so much fun.
1: Yeah that was a fun one.
0: Yeah. Very
1: inspirational too and and inspiring and uh, you know your, your story was hit home with a lot of people. I remember people like messaging me and asking about you and Um, the comments that came in. So yeah, well, thank you for doing
0: that. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It was so much fun and um, such a great idea to do, especially during quarantine, just to like connect with people. And uh, that's kind of um, actually, you know, I had started this podcast before uh, COVID and then when like quarantine happened, I just didn't do it because I assumed, I just thought I'll wait till we could do it in person. And after you kind of inspired me after seeing how well it worked just over the phone, I'm like, oh, okay, true. I think I can do this during quarantine. And so we started, you know, we started back up again. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. No, I, it was funny because when, when everybody went into quarantine, um, where was I? Well, I was in Aspen, Colorado for two months <clears throat> and then I pivoted back to L.A. And I, I continued to do them. Um, and then I stopped doing them because, um, I just got busier with other stuff, but uh, like there was it started becoming like a thing, like people were doing these Instagram lives. Um, and they were, it was really rewarding. I got to interview some, some really interesting people. I don't know if I could repeat that again because things have gotten busier for people. So it's hard to track. Mm-hmm. people down yeah. but I w- I remember calling up like you know a- anybody who had a story or somebody who was like well known in the industry and I'd say hey do you mind doing an Instagram live interview you know with me and um and it sharpened my skills as a um not podcaster but like a uh, almost like a journalist mm-hmm. um which is a different muscle you know to answer questions is one thing to ask them is another
0: (laughs) oh yeah yep
1: uh, so it was good for me in that sense and and a lot of people just surprisingly were like yeah i'll do it um but you know you're sitting around your house all day waiting for the world to open up you know people are trying to kill time
0: (laughs) yeah i know that was kind of a plus too. um people that i probably normally like wouldn't be able to get you know, on here because their schedules are so crazy. They were like, yeah, sure. And, you know, um, and yeah, you were, you know, so great at doing your research cause we had never met before and you knew like you had like knew so much about me that I'm like, Oh my gosh, he saw that interview or <laughs> he saw that. Like he did, you did their research and I have to say like starting this podcast, it is tougher than it looks. So you did did a great job. I'm like, wow, I want to get that good someday. But it is it's so it's so hard. Um, I was doing an interview the other day. And this girl, um, I had she's amazing. I had never met her before. She's, um, you know, my friend's sister, but I got confused on what show she was on. And I said, like, HGTV, and she was on like, the home and family network and i'm like oh and like she said afterward like you know i wasn't on that and i'm like oh gosh like it's just so like hard to keep track of everything um, Yeah, it's definitely harder than it than it looks but yeah amazing
1: yeah it's it's a fun you know art form and platform and i think doing your research like if you know the person that's one thing mm-hmm. i was interviewing a lot of people that i knew so i didn't really have to do any research but um If I didn't know somebody, I started Googling and looking up, you know, Wikipedia and whatever research I can do on the person so I could be able to ask, you know, intelligent questions and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, questions that hit home with the person. So, yeah, thank you for doing that. Yeah. It's still on my, uh, it's funny because when I first started doing them, I didn't save them. I don't know why I didn't. For some reason, I just didn't. And then um, you were one of the first ones I actually saved, and it's still on my um, IGTV, so that was cool.
0: Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That's awesome. I'll have to go back and look at look at it. Yeah. I just remember it being a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, we had a good time. You, so yeah, thank you.
0: and I did get to learn a little bit about you, but I did, um, I did like Wikipedia you because I didn't know exactly when you moved here. So your family is. Um, from Egypt, so you're, a yeah. Nigerian, and you moved here when you were very little.
1: Yeah, my uh, my parents. So there's six of us, <clears throat> four sisters and one brother. My mom and dad got married in a little city outside of Cairo, Egypt, called Helwan. It's like a little farm village town.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, she was 16. He was 28 which over there, you know, is legal here. It's not. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but, you know, it was back in the like late sixties, I think. So um, that was just like the culture back then, you know, in that part of the world. But yeah, they got married. They had my older sister and myself and we immigrated to the U S in 1970. I was about a month and a half old mm. and we grew up in Riverside, California near were you, yeah. I, you said you grew up in Hemet, right?
0: Yes, good yeah. memory. Yeah, I grew up in Hemet. We were neighbors.
1: Yeah, we were neighbors. So uh, I grew up in Riverside, had a pretty normal childhood, you know, outside of my house. Went to, uh, uh, what was it, elementary school, Highland Elementary School, University Heights Middle School, and then John W. North High School. Mm-hmm. And um Played sports. So I was in some of the school plays, that kind of thing. Um, I always had this dream to, because I grew up watching, um, you know, like all those seventies and eighties uh, sitcoms, Three's Company, mm-hmm.
0: Happy Days.
1: Um, gosh, what else was out there? Sanford and Son, yeah. and then later on, it became like Roseanne. Everybody loves Raymond. You know, Tim Allen show. All these shows, Friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and then movies I'd go to the movies every weekend i'd buy one ticket and then i'd bounce around from theater to theater. oh yeah, just binge it was almost like like binge watching netflix back then you know you would just go from movie to movie
0: so you were pretty um passionate about just like theater and and acting and and movies and t v and and comedy from a pretty young age then
1: yeah i mean i didn't know. I didn't realize to what extent I would, you know, chase that dream. Uh, At first, I was just fascinated by watching movies and TV shows. I was, I love the idea of entertainment, comedies, especially. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and I made it, I made a pretty hard decision in my head that I was going to move to Hollywood and pursue the entertainment industry. I actually had this like epiphany that I was surrounded around all these you know, Hollywood moguls and famous people and not only as an actor and a comedian, but as a producer as well, which is interesting because I've become more on the producer director side mm-hmm. of things as I've gotten older. And um, and so, yeah, I just made a hard decision in my head that I was going to do it. I didn't tell anybody until I was a senior in high school because I know, you know, when you tell people, oh, you're going to. I'm gonna move to Hollywood and I'm gonna make it. People go, oh, Yeah, right. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't I don't like people giving me the evil eye, which which is what my mom calls it. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And not not necessarily that, that they're evil, but they're not rooting for you either.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So, how did your um, family take it when you finally told four? them?
1: They fucking gave me the evil eye.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what did they expect you to do? Did your parents have some ideal oh, yeah. career for you?
1: Yeah, when you're when you grow up in a in a ethnic family, especially Middle Eastern family, and specifically being the oldest son in the family, mm. you're you're supposed to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. Mm or business owner of some sort, but typically it's doctor, lawyer, um, engineer.
0: Is that what your dad, what did you, what did your dad do?
1: Oddly enough, he wasn't any of
0: them. Oh, <laughs> but he expected you to do
1: it. He expected me to be it. The parents don't necessarily, necessarily follow that dream. My dad was, um, entrepreneur, businessman. He had, he ended up kind of being the town mechanic where oh, I grew up. Okay. He had his own, automotive shop called uh, his his name's his well he passed away god rest his soul but his name's his name was abu baker but people couldn't pronounce his name correctly so he went by the name baker okay. so he opened an automotive shop called baker's automotive oh. and he had a tow truck and he had like two bins in his garage and people would go to him because they trusted him and he was he ended up kind of being a town mechanic then he had a couple gas stations before during and after a restaurant that lasted for about five years um but automotive industry was was kind of his jam um they were pretty disappointed when i told them i was moving to hollywood my uh i remember my dad said what thought are you a gay and i said a gay no there's no, <laughs> such, thing. There's no such thing as a gay um, and no i'm not gay um and he didn't talk to me for about seven years he was embarrassed and ashamed that that i you know would move and move to hollywood and join a cult you know he thought i was oh, doing and, okay. and my mom supported me just because she was uh she was just nervous and afraid she'd that motherly kind of you know uh, whatever instinct of, of mm-hmm. fear of their children not mm-hmm. making it in the industry that's really tough i mean Mm-hmm. you know, you know, as well as anybody else, this industry, the entertainment industry, you know, can be one of the hardest industries in the world yeah. um, because there is no school for it. There's no degree. There's no, yeah. you know, you really just kind of have to have some sort of talent, some sort of look and just hardcore tenacity and consistency.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and it, it really is about consistency
0: it really is i know and i've se- i and i get why parents freak out a little bit i've i've seen both ends i've seen where where someone has a dream of, you know and they go for it and it works for them they're very consistent and they they put everything they have into it and then i've also seen some friends who have been doing this their entire life and they still haven't like they're they're broke they're working you know, 10 jobs to like try to make it, you know, they're doing like Uber and Uber Eats and DoorDash and like all these things and then trying to make and then bartending and trying to make it and they've been at it for years and years and years and, and it's so tough. It's like you, yeah, you definitely have to have a thick skin. You hear no a lot. Mm-hmm. And you have to, like, keep going and keep going. And, um, like, so, some people don't really make it until they're in their, you know, like, 50s, and, and that's fine. But, like, but a lot of people will finally, like, you know, give up. It's, it's so hard to keep going sometimes because you either come here and you make it like that or you come here and it takes you years and years and then you finally hit it big 20 years later. Or sometimes it just, like, you know
1: yeah i mean i I think i think manifesting too plays a lot into your dreams coming true it's like Mm -hmm. you know if you you look at people that have made it most of them like wrote down in their journal you know i'm gonna be a big star by the time i'm 50 you know 25 or whatever jim carrey used to write checks to himself for a million bucks Mm -hmm. you know you hear stuff about that you know meditating and yeah, kind of, kind of daydreaming and visualizing um, yes. where you want to be, and reading the right books, and surrounding yourself with people that are more talented and, and successful than you. Right.
0: Because
1: um, yeah. you just automatically kind of grab and crystallize that energy, whether you like it or not. You're just you kind of become successful by. Um, association and osmosis, just being around it. Right.
0: And that's what you did. I know that you have like Vince Vaughn is one of your good friends and mm-hmm. and you have, I mean, quite a few amazing talented friends that kind of um, that you've met when you've, well, you could tell the story, but I know that you met them and surrounded yourself by pretty successful people. And, and that kind of, like you said, like bringing yourself around those people they you know bring you up and so
1: yeah um, it's it's interesting that you mentioned Vince because he he's like out of all my friends and that are in the entertainment industry he's probably um, the most like hardcore manifestor like his, oh, really? his the way his brain works and the way he thinks he's a super highly intelligent force of nature mm-hmm. and. Um, And, you know, I met Vince before he was famous. Hmm. Um, Nobody knew who he was. He was literally an unknown actor. And I met him on an after-school special called The Fourth Man. And it was him and this actor who I'm also best friends with, who we're all still friends uh, to this day. uh, This guy named Peter Billingsley. And Peter Billingsley was in a film called A Christmas Story. That um, mm-hmm. they play every every year on like yeah. TV ads, and he was a big child star. Um, he was like the Macaulay Culkin of uh, of our time. Yeah, and he was in commercials and on TV shows, and anyway, he was on this ha- he was in this after school special where he played a computer nerd who had a crush on this actress named Nicole egger I don't know if you remember her. She was in Baywatch, and um, Charles in charge. She was like oh, the daughter, okay. of her, the blonde girl. Yeah, yeah. So she she was like the hot chick in the show, and he wanted to date her, but she only dated jocks. So he joined the track team to impress her, but he wasn't fast enough, so he took steroids. Okay. That was the you know that after school special like don't do drugs and that yeah. kind of thing. And Vince Vaughn played the star quarterback of the of the football team who was like, I'm going to tell the coach, you know, you're doing steroids. And he's like, you better not. And they got this whole thing. <laughs> and I was an extra. It was the first extra job I, I had ever had.
0: How um, old were I was, you?
1: I was 19.
0: Oh, wow. So you had just finished high school, came out here, and and that was like your first –
1: Yep, I started. Uh, I just wanted to see what it was like because I wasn't sure if it was for me. Um, and then I'd heard a story about uh, Clint Eastwood that he was an extra on, like in movies and TV shows before he became Clint Eastwood. He just wanted to study. Like it's a great if you do it forever. It's it's kind of loserville. Mm-hmm. But if you if you when you get into the entertainment industry being an extra on a movie or tv set is the best paid education you mm-hmm. can get because you 100%. get to just yeah. study everything and eyeball everything and see how the cameras work and how the production works and this that and the other thing yeah and and so i decided to sign up for, with this extra agency they were called um central casting at the time i think and the first job they called me for was to play one of the track team members on this after-school special. And so I went down there and I was on it for like four days. I remember, and I remember Vince Vaughn coming on to say, I knew who Peter Billings was cause he was, he had been a big child star, but his career had, was starting to descend a little bit. Mm-hmm. And now he's real well-known. Um, Uh, producer and director, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, acting was his jam for a second. But Vince Vaughn, unknown at the time, walked on set, and I had no idea who he was. And he's like Chicago kid, real snappy, you know, fast talker.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, he just, what what you see is what you get. Back when he was younger, he was very, very much that guy. Mm -hmm. And... And I was like, who's this fucking guy? Because <laughs> like, he was just so like, he was just so electric when he came onto the set. And like I said, fast talking, really funny. And he had a, um, he had a little honey wagon trailer, like the size of a closet. And I remember uh, we broke for lunch and all the actors either got their lunch and went to the trailer or sat with the paid actors and then all the extras got like these little sandwiches. We had to go sit with the extras. Mm -hmm. So I'm walking over to the area where the extras were with my sandwich and Vince's uh, door was open to his honey wagon trailer. And he's like, Hey, I go, Hey, he goes, come on in here. Have lunch with me. And I was like, Oh, I can't, you know, I'm an extra. I don't want to be in trouble. He was like, fuck that. I'll, I'll vouch for you. Come on in. So I came in and it was a trailer. We sat down, had lunch. We talked for an hour. And we just bonded like right away um, on on several levels. Um, And that's how we became friends. We've been friends ever since.
0: That is amazing. I love that.
1: And he's been really influential in my, not only as a friend, but like in my career quite a bit. Um, We did a He produced a tour called Vince Vaughn's Wild West Comedy Show with myself and Brett Ernst and Sebastian Escalco, who became a big comedian mm-hmm. recently. And uh, John Caparello was in it. A bunch of other stars were in it. And he was the executive producer of Sullivan and Son, which was a sitcom I was on for three yeah. years. So um, yeah, he, you know, I've, I've been in a couple of his movies, like Small Parts, The Breakup, um, Fred Claus, Swingers. I was in Swingers for a second it's funny a couple of the movies that i was in uh you know he would just call me up and say hey i'm producing this movie um do you want to come do a couple lines in it sure and i remember getting cut out of a couple of the movies but i ended up in the bonus features oh yeah (laughs) which was funny so i started a production company called bonus features productions
0: (laughs) Amazing,
1: I, I literally it was like in the bonus features of like five movies. I'm just like,
0: <laughs> the number guess, it happens the all the time. <laughs> that is hilarious. You have to laugh, but it happens all the time. Um, yeah, that's amazing. I love that. So you basically like you move here and you meet Vince and like immediately you start getting work it sounds like and then you're making friends that last forever well, no. and no I, I didn't
1: I didn't get work right away. I came I did my thing as an extra. Mm-hmm. Vince and I became friends. Um he I said, "Look, I really want to, pers- you know, pursue this acting thing." He said, "Well, you need you need to go to acting classes." I said, yeah, I'd love to. He said, let me introduce you to my acting teacher. His name was Cliff Osmond at the time. And um, so I started taking acting classes once a week with this guy, Cliff Osmond, and I started getting my chops as an actor. Um, Well, during that time, I was working as a waiter, personal trainer, doing anything I could to kind of Uh pay the bills. And then I I started getting little tiny bit parts, like in soap operas and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, like they called them under fives. Back then, five lines, five lines or under. Oh, okay. Um, And then I felt like I could, you know, take my acting to the next level. So I really wanted to train as an actor. So I quit for a while and I went to the Academy of Dramatic Arts. It was called the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. It was like, the theater arts school yeah. in pa- in uh, Pasadena, and um, uh, and then I didn't get invited back because uh, <clears throat> they told me that they didn't want film and TV actors; they wanted thespians. Oh, okay. and I was like, "Well, I want to be on fucking you know film <laughs> school." So, um, and then I so I so that I didn't get invited back, but then I went on to work. That's when I went on to work quite a bit. Most of the most of the parts that I took back in the day were like the terrorist or the cab driver or the sleazy Arab guy. Or mm-hmm. there was always like the stereotype, you know, role that I was getting cast in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was lucky because I was making money. I wasn't that two percentile of like working actors. Mm-hmm. But it was like, you know, I'm from Riverside. I'm a California boy. But my name was killing me, Ahmed. Ahmed, mm. and my agent at the time was like, "You need to change your name if you want to continue to work, you know, and and play mainstream roles." And I, I just said, "No." And she's like, "Well, I'll call you if something comes up, but casting is only going to bring you in for terrorist and cab driver parts." Huh. So I said, "Only call me if there's like the friend or the doctor or the lawyer, or the you know, just regular guy." And then the phone stopped ringing. So um, I ran out of money. I remember sleeping on Vince Vaughn's couch, <laughs> uh, which was interesting. And then uh, and I went back to waiting tables. So I had a good year where I was making money as an actor, but then I, my ego and my, right. my whatever you want to call it, um, stubbornness, you know, because I didn't want to change my name, Uh, you know led me to not you know be able to be even called in for any regular parts
0: but i think that's that you know speaks a lot about you and and uh, you know i wouldn't change my name either i think that that's i mean obviously what we're dealing with a lot now is that it's kind of bullshit that that they would only cast you for those roles and that your name would affect your career i think that that's a that's a huge problem that we're, you know, trying to change right now. So well, thank you so for not changing, you know, your name yeah. and staying strong and, you know, not wanting those roles because you knew that you had more talent than that. You're better than that. And you wanted the real roles, which you deserve. So
1: well, looking back on it, I feel like if I would have changed my name, I probably would have worked more, but mm-hmm. there was something in my soul that just didn't want to give that up to Hollywood, I didn't want to like, mm-hmm. not that I would sell my soul, but I would I would be giving up my birth given name. And I was so connected to my name and my heritage, and my culture. Um, and so, but the good news is, is my name Ahmed Ahmed helped me as a comedian, which I didn't mm-hmm. see coming. So, you know, God has a plan. The universe has a plan. And the plan for me was, stick to your guns, don't change your name, and you, you'll see the light at the end of the tunnel. So I was waiting tables at this restaurant in Pasadena. It was called Twin Palms at the time. Kevin Costner, you mm. Yeah. Uh, did you remember that restaurant? Yeah, Twin Palms? I do. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Like a French, country French cuisine, a little high end. Um, at the time, Kevin Costner was at the top of his game, so a lot of people were going there just to see if he was there. Uh-huh. Um, I was like one of the head waiters at the time. I was making a lot of money at 24 years old, working like four nights a week as a waiter. Uh-huh. Um, I just had this gift of gab and <clears throat> this kind of fun, charismatic, you know, I, I would make it fun for people to eat, you know, and crack jokes and I'd comp desserts and crack open wine and light cigars. And uh-huh. I, it was almost like I was, I had a seat at the table for every table I was serving. Uh-huh. And that translated into big tips. Mm-hmm. And one night, this uh, older woman came in. She was probably in her 80s. And four, she had four of her older sons with her. They were all gay. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, very obviously gay. Mm-hmm. Wearing ascots and suits, and very astute, and glasses. And, and, and I remember making them laugh the whole night. And at the end of the night, the old woman put uh $300 in my hand and she said uh, that's for you and I said oh well we all split the tips here we pull tips and she's like I'll tip everybody out that's strictly for you don't give it to anybody and I said oh this is too much money I can't take this <clears throat> why are you giving me this so money and she said um we had the best time we've ever had We don't come here for the food. We come here for the service. You gave us great service, and you're very funny. You should be a comedian. And I looked at her, and it was almost like the world stopped. You know, there was a live band. There's 500 people outside. It was very noisy. And everything just kind of morphed and stopped, and I just looked right at her intently, and I said, you think you know funny? And she goes, of course I do. Look at all my son's. And they all started laughing and clapping. Oh, mother. And, you know, it, was like a, it was a fun, fun moment. And um, and then I figured, look, as a waiter or as a bartender, you know, it's all about customer service and, and making people laugh and having a good time. And I thought, all right, well, if I can do that already, let me just move the food out of the way and go right to the consumer. And that's what stand-up comedy is, really, is yeah. kind of being a funny waiter without giving people food.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's, that's where it kind of transitioned into, right? I took her advice, and a month later, I found this open mic night at a place called the LA Cabaret Comedy Club on Ventura Boulevard in the valley. It doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. But I was driving down the street after a work uh, session, And I saw this sign in the window. Open mic night, tonight, 7 o'clock, sign up at 6. So I pulled in there, I signed up. I wrote, like, maybe five jokes or stories about my family. I went up on stage for five minutes in front of 40 uh, comedians that were also there for the open mic, and I made them laugh. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm pretty good, you know? If I can make comedians laugh, then... You know, the rest is no problem. And then I continued to do these open mics, and I I bombed for the next, like, two years.
0: I was going to say, how did the first open mic go? Because that's – I, I got to give you guys props, because that is terrifying. I had a dream once that I did an open mic and bombed, <laughs> and I'm like – I'm not even, like, never, ever have wanted to do stand-up or anything, but – I mean, was it terrifying, like the first open mic that you ever did?
1: Well, the first one I did, I, I just told you about, was the, at the L.A. Yeah. cabaret.
0: but you met them, you met. You made them laugh, the, the comics, but like the first, like the audience, well, most, regular.
1: Yeah, I mean, so most open mics are typically filled with comedians. Uh, oh, I but- didn't
0: know that, because I've been to open mics, and I thought it was
1: just... I mean, you'll have audience members. I don't know now because I haven't done them in a, quite a while. But in the beginning, it was mostly comics, oh, and then, okay. and then you'd go to some open mics and get you know lucky to have some stage time, and then there were audience members there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I bombed quite a bit um, in the beginning, mm. um, and then I don't know what happened. Like the worm turned. Some some weird like magical, you know intervention happened where um, I, get, I think I just started personalizing my stories a little bit more. Also, you know, I, I was studying, religiously studying other comics. Oh, cool. So I'd go to the comedy clubs five, six, seven nights a week and just sit in the back of the room till two in the morning and just watch. Hmm. I wanted to see the tricks of the trade. You know, you can't teach stand-up comedy, but you can learn some tricks of the trade. And that's kind of what happened after a couple years. <clears throat> I wrote my first like 10 minutes, like strong 10 minutes. And then you kind of take that 10 minutes around town and then people start to recognize that, like, okay, this person's coming up on the scene. Um, and, you know, at the time there weren't any middle Eastern comics on the scene. I was like the only guy. Um, and then there were a couple other ones kind of lingering around. And then I eventually started my own comedy night at a place called Dublin's. Uh, I don't know if you remember Dublin's on Sunset Boulevard. I
0: don't remember
1: it, it. I remember, you know, Jay-Z's song, Bubbling at Dublin's and all that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had this, cause I couldn't get booked at the comedy clubs. It wouldn't uh, pass me. And then sometimes you go to these, you know, you kind of just had to linger around the comedy scene for a minute to get any sort of credibility but i wasn't getting past and i've always been one that's kind of like what i'm doing now it's funny that i'm kind of repeating my pattern from 20 years ago but when i don't get passed at a club or don't get something like that goes my way i'll go start my own thing like i have this whole saying if you don't get invited to the party make your own party mm-hmm. like buy your own house get your own food and liquor get a dj you know what i mean like yeah. metaphorically yeah and so i was like fuck this i'm not gonna wait around for the club so i started this night at a place called dublin's which coincidentally was right in between the laugh factory and the comedy store ah. so we sucked all the energy out of that place <sighs> and took it to our room and so at the time we had unknown at the time dane cook mm-hmm. um dave chappelle daryl hammond um, Gosh, Leslie Jones, Zach Galifianakis, Ken Jeong. Mm-hmm. That's when Vince Vaughn was coming in quite a bit. He'd come in and watch the shows every week. And uh, Sebastian Maniscalco, Brett Ertz, Bobby Lee. Um, you know, the list went on and on. Yeah. Unknowns and knowns and then everybody in between. Mm-hmm. And then that show got so popular, it got me an invitation back to the comedy store. Mm. And that's how I got past to the comedy store. And then Mitzi Shore, who was the owner at the time—God rest her soul—she, uh, that's Polly Shore's mom. Yeah, yeah. She she took a real liking to me. Oh. Um, she was just a real sweet woman who was very clairvoyant. She had a she had a vision. She could tell if somebody was funny just by looking at them, mm-hmm. you know. And she passed me at the comedy store and then she started and then there were two other comics that were there from the middle east and she started a show called the arabian nights which we later called the axis of evil comedy tour Mm -hmm. and it was right when president bush was in office and he coined the phrase axis of evil so we took it and put comedy tour in the end and we were we were the first middle eastern comedy show ever to be on comedy central national television we toured all over the Middle East, sold 20,000 tickets, sold out shows. Um, I made a documentary about it called Just Like Us. Mm-hmm. And and she had predicted it. She actually told me straight up, you're going to go to the Middle East and you're going to bring comedy to the Middle East. And at the time, I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so she kind of prophesized my career quite a bit. Um,
0: wow. that is and amazing.
1: so yeah, since then, my, you know my comedy kind of translated globally i've been to 50 countries around the world i've spent a lot of time in dubai egypt saudi arabia jordan lebanon um kuwait
0: and what does your family think now because i know they were hesitant to have (laughs) you do this so when they saw you start to to kind of blow up and go to all these different countries and were they proud or they
1: oh yeah well when i got my first part in in my first big like m- terrorist film. It was a film called executive decision with Kurt Russell, Halle Berry and Steven Seagal. I played terrorist number four. I think it was, mm. um, m- my dad was like, Oh, that's my son. We always knew, you know, but then he, uh, but then he, um, and then I quit. I quit acting for a while. And my parents were like, you know, my dad was like, okay, good. You had a nice run. Now get go back to school and be a doctor or lawyer. Or so <laughs> I was like, you don't understand. I'm not. I'm not doing that. Whatever. And he's like, well, what, did you, you know, what are you going to do? What's the next? And I said, I'm going to be a stand-up comic. And he was like,
0: oh,
1: <laughs> really? <laughs> and so, so because I started from scratch, like I started over, like I had a nice nice career as an actor Mm -hmm. Uh, even though I was playing stereotypical parts but I was in like big movies and TV shows and stuff and working with like these big stars and then when I quit went back to waiting tables and then transitioned you know back into the industry as a comic I literally just like wiped my slate clean and started from scratch I was I think 24, 25 at the time Mm -hmm. and then And then I started getting past at all the comedy clubs, the Laugh Factory, the improv, the comedy stores. Kind of a weird dream come true. It wasn't wasn't really translating into money, but on any given weekend, I'd have my name on all three marquees on all three clubs, Mm. which is a hard thing. That's a hard thing to do. Yeah. So I had that happen for a minute. um, And then I was traveling all over the Middle East mostly, but around the world, which is, like I said, 40, 50 different countries. Um, the internet was just kind of booming at the time, so it was easy for people to go online and check my clips and Google me and all that. And then, um, and then I felt like, well, then I was on a sitcom. I was on Sullivan and Son for a minute, so that kept me in town. Um, and that was nice. That's just, an, I didn't even audition. They just called me up and said, we're going to give you ah, this part. That's
0: amazing.
1: And it's nice. That, I had that a,
0: doesn't really happen very often.
1: It doesn't happen often if you're not known. And I wasn't mm-hmm. known. It's, to me, to this day, I'm still not known. But, um, but I got to work. I had a job for three years. I had a parking space with my name on it, and a dressing room with my name on it, and a chair with my name on it. And, um, it was a lot of fun. I worked with really talented people. And then um, when that ended, there was this kind of like, it's like the world stopped because my agents let me go, my manager let me go, my lawyer decided he didn't want to work with me anymore. Um, like my career was kind of fa- like falling apart slowly, little by little in a weird way.
0: What? Do you know you why know? all of a sudden that?
1: Um. Well, you know, when you're hot, you're hot. When you're not, you're not. Mm. And it's, and I take, you know, I don't blame the industry. I take, you know, full accountability for not keeping up to speed with like social media and like putting out more content. And I should have started a podcast. And there were things that I just didn't do because I had my focus on other stuff, like Mm. my documentary, this documentary that I made called Just Like Us. It's on, it's currently on YouTube for free. Uh, if you just go to cr- cross-cultural productions on YouTube. Uh, it was on Netflix. It was on Showtime. It was on Starz. And then we got the licensing back for it. And now we just put it on YouTube for free. But that took three years of my life, mm-hmm. ma- making a documentary. It was a very, very hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of took my eye off the ball with other stuff because I was so invested in this thing. We won awards and it was critically acclaimed. It didn't make money. Um, Documentaries typically don't make money. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was a great feather in my cap and a great accomplishment for me. And it's it's something I can look at and say, oh, you know, it's part of my body of work that I've put out there. Um, My dad is in it, funny enough. I put my dad in the documentary and he steals the show in the documentary because my dad's really funny, <laughs> um, and so yeah. And then I, um, I feel like the comedy industry was kind of imploding a little bit around 2015. Mm. Um, I also, it's funny because all the comedy clubs that I mentioned to you, the Laugh Factory, the Comedy Store, I ended up getting banned from those places eventually. Why? Haters want to hate, hate, hate. hate. <laughs> You know, our our industry is very cutthroat and it's very competitive and um, comics typically just don't like each other. Um, I have more of a producer mentality so I don't really think like that Mm -hmm. and I've helped out a lot of comics but everyone's just looking out for themselves and at the time, I won't name names but there are a couple comics that really kind of had it out for me and they didn't want me around. I think I was just to full of light, you know? And, and the darkness kind of overshadowed that. And so they all kind of circled their wagons and, you know, made sure I wasn't performing there anymore.
0: I will and say was- like, yeah, working with, uh, working at those places for so long and getting to know a lot of comics, I, I it was almost like a high school and there were cliques. Oh, yeah. And those cliques they looked out for each other, they gave each other jobs, they made sure that they were taken care of. And then the ones that they decided they didn't like, they made sure that they didn't go to these places. Yeah. And everybody had their cliques. And I it's it's interesting as just a photographer at these places, but because I'm pretty outgoing, I got to know everybody, I would take their headshots, I would they'd ask me, Can you take photos of me on stage and I'll slip you some money, whatever. And so so, you know, and then going out to eat after and all that, I got to know all these people and I'm and I'm kind of in the middle of it. And I'm like, well why don't you like this guy? Like I don't understand. He's such a great guy. And like but everybody had their clicks. So I totally get it. And and they would like cutthroat if they didn't like somebody or they thought that they stole their joke or whatever it would be like they would be calling people up don't ever let him in this club again or i'm never coming back type of thing and yeah i mean
1: yeah i mean that's like when i was at the comedy store i was kind of at the top of my game as a comic um and mitzi shore really took a liking to me like i said and uh you know, I was an actor for a long time and I had like celebrity friends before I got to the comedy scene. Mm-hmm. So I'd show up to the comedy store on any given Friday or Saturday night and Vince Vaughn would be on my right side and Tom Morello, the guitar player for Rage Against the Machine would be on my left side and we'd have hot chicks with us and actors and it was like, I'd kind of come in with an entourage. Mm-hmm. And it, not, it wasn't to like show anybody off we all would go hang out on Sunset Boulevard and drink, but they would come watch me first. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, okay, well, let's go down to the whatever, Standard, the Sky Bar, the whatever, Collage yeah. Hotel for drinks afterwards. They're like, oh, you know, we're gonna come watch your set. So I'd walk in with like, you know, just the young Hollywood scene, sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes 10 deep.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I remember uh, Joe Rogan at the time, Uh, was he would sit in the back parking lot, smoke weed, and every time I'd walk back, you know, typically when it was by myself, he would always slow clap me. You know, I'm mad, I'm mad, everybody. I'm mad, I'm mad. Mayor of Hollywood.
0: (laughs) Mayor of Hollywood.
1: (laughs) And I used to just go, hey, Joe, you know. Um, And then I had a falling out with a comic that he was friends with. Mm -hmm. And he... He called up the comedy. I know this for a fact. He called up the comedy store and he said, if Ahmed Ahmed's name is on the lineup, I'm not going to perform there.
0: Joe Rogan said
1: that? Joe Rogan. So that Friday night, Spots came out and he wasn't on the list, but I was. Mm. And he called the club furious. What the fuck's going on? Why is this happening? And the booker at the time said, Mitzi Shore told me to tell you, don't tell her how to run her club. Wow. And I was like, yes!
0: Yeah. And,
1: <laughs> and then about two weeks later, he had an incident with this comic named Carlos Mencia on stage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it made, it was on YouTube. It went viral. Yeah, I remember and it that. Put, and, it, and it put a black eye on the reputation of the comedy store. Mm-hmm. And so he got banned after that. He was banned for almost 15 years. Mm-hmm. And in 2015-16, when she started getting sick and she didn't have a lot of control of the club anymore, she eventually passed. The changing of the guards happened. New management, new booker, new everything. And that's when Rogan came back in. And that's when I got phased out. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So it's interesting how he came back. He came back back to avenge me. Yeah,
0: gosh. And
1: and it was funny because I started getting... I I, I just stopped getting spots. They didn't tell me I was banned. But I stopped getting spots, and I was really like curious, what the fuck's going on? And I reached out to the talent booker at the time, and I said, "Hey, what's what's happening?" Um, and he sent me a text message, like an idiot, saying, um, "I've been instructed by comedians to not book you." And I was like, "Whoa!" Now the inmates are running the joint. They're <laughs> running the asylum. <laughs> And I knew, oh, I knew please. who it was, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't tell me who it was, but I knew who it was. I knew, I knew Joe had a hand in it. And then I got phased out of there. And then all his, I call them the Roganites, all his little, <laughs> his little cronies. And they all, they all started to turn on me, guys that I was friends with. Mm. So I was like, you know, you just, you, the comedy world's really petty and it people is. take sides and. It's very backstabby and and high schooly, and I didn't like it. Um, and then and then about six months later, it happened at the Laugh Factory. Similar situation, different comic. Mm. Um, and then I just had enough. I just said, "Like enough was enough." Fuck the comedy scene. The LA comedy scene is petty and childish, and I can't stand it. And so I moved to Asia for two years.
0: Oh wow!
1: And I just got up. I got a job offer to work for a comedy events com- uh, company in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I took it. I was performing. I was working in the office nine to five during the day. And I would do stand-up comedy at night. And I, on the weekends I would go to Singapore, Vietnam, Thailand, you know, Bali, wow. China, Japan. I was really just touring all over Asia. I was really having a blast in Asia. Excuse me. And then I, um, and I was, really had like a, like a hand in the comedy scene in Asia. Um, and it was great because I was kind of like, I wasn't a big fish in a little pond, but I was gathering information. I was doing my collecting data. I was really like writing a new act and I did. I wrote a whole new hour of material when I was in Asia. Um, and then I eventually left because I felt like the Asian comedy scene still needed to grow a little bit more. And I was just kind of getting burned out on it. And then I came back about two months before, uh, before the pandemic, before COVID.
0: Oh, I didn't realize it was that recent that you had been back.
1: And then I, I came back to uh, well, I came back to New York for a minute, and then I went on a ski trip with my business partner and his family to Aspen, Colorado, two days before the pandemic. and we got stuck there for two months. Oh my god! And then, yeah, and I ended up being like a private chefing for his family because I cook, and I, that's kind of my jam is cooking. But um, yeah, and then I eventually pivoted back. Sorry about that. You there? Yeah,
0: I'm here. <laughs> somebody,
1: somebody tried to call me.
0: Oh. Um,
1: and then I eventually ended up pivoting back to Venice, to LA, and Venice Beach where I live. You're you're in Santa Monica, right?
0: Yeah, we're neighbors. Yeah. Again.
1: <laughs> I know.
0: It is pretty so, uh, crazy like the, hearing your story and and hearing some of the the names that you were talking about, you just always wonder I I I just find it fascinating how small of a world it is and just picturing like the timeline of you going to all these comedy clubs and like partying after at like the standard or the W or wherever. Like, you know, we used to go to Mel's diner all the time. There was a time Mm -hmm. where like Chris, Leah and and Jason and I, and we would all like go. So I think Joe Coy went a couple of times, like we would go to Mel's after and like go grab drinks somewhere. And it's like, um, you know, the same people, we know so many of the same people. And I've had these nights with like, you know, like some of the names that you mentioned and, and we probably crossed paths so many times and didn't really realize it. And the fact that we both grew up, like you're in Riverside, I'm in Hemet and like, you know, neighbors. And then here, Venice, Santa Monica, it's like, it's just (laughs) interesting. And like you've done all these other things since then. And it's like, it's just interesting how everything kind of is intertwined all these lives.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, for i for me like life's about timing mm. timing is everything sometimes it's it's funny cuz i've become friends with people that i never thought i'd be friends with mm. and i've um unfriended you know people that i thought i would be friends with forever same uh, yeah yeah and and um during the pandemic you know people brought out the best and the worst of themselves you know i'm i'm Guilty and famous for both. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, um, when I got back to Venice, the clubs were shut down. The comedy scene just got clobbered. And I was just kind of twiddling my thumbs. I was doing these Instagram live interviews. I was just trying to, you know, just do something to keep me sane. Mm-hmm. And I decided, you know, let's start just doing comedy underground, outside, Sneak, you know it kind of like a speakeasy mm-hmm. prohibition type of show
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so i did we started the show a few months back called venice comedy compound it's right around the corner from my house it's actually in harrison ford's kids old compound they used to own this place okay and um and it started to pick up and i started getting you know really people that i've known for a while but like comics that are famous now who weren't famous 10 years ago. Like,
0: I've seen some of the guests that you've had recently.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. Oh. Who are, it's interesting who I call up and who says yes, who says no. And like who Tiffany kind of,
0: Haddish you just had, right?
1: Tiffany Haddish. We just had her, you know, she was homeless living out of her car. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Bill Burr, he wasn't famous 10 years ago. He was well known, but he wasn't famous. Mm-hmm. Um, I called up Bill Burr out of the blue one uh, afternoon, and he he just picked – I just had his number on my phone, and I said, you know, I'm going to fucking call Bill Burr. I called him up, and he was like, hello. I said, hey, Bill, it's Ahmed Ahmed. He goes, Ahmed Ahmed, what's going on? I said, thanks for taking my call. What do you mean thanks for taking your call? I know he's 20 fucking years. Of course I'm going to take your fucking call. I love that. What, what's <laughs> going on? How you, how you been? What, what are you doing? What's going on? Tell me what's going on. I said, look, man, I started this comedy night in Venice Beach. Would you mind coming down and, you know, Grayson our stage with your presence? And he's like, yeah, of course I will. So he's been there five times since. And he runs his whole hour. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's coming back again next week. So, you know, he, guys like that I respect because they're not too good. Right. Him, you know, they're... You
0: know. Yeah. You know, I, I, Hatters,
1: same thing. You mm-hmm. know, we had we had um, gosh, Jeff Ross was in there recently. Uh, Michael Rapaport came through there. Jeremy Piven, who's been doing a lot of stand up mm-hmm. comedy recently. He's been he's been yeah. popping in. Um, and then all these like very, very funny, but unknown comics mm-hmm. that come on the reg like Adam Hunter. He's been there a couple of times. You know, he's not necessarily household name famous but he's one of the best comics in the game right now mm-hmm. um so i just i kind of just went back into my rolodex and i reached out to 100 percent of the comics that i like and i'd say about 80 percent have responded and or come into the room so that's okay. for me that's a good percentage yeah that's and great. the others who don't yeah the others who don't reply or you know who say no um too bad for them <laughs> you No,
0: know, it's interesting that you say that because i'm kind of going through that with um like you said like people that you think are your friend or that you'd be friends with forever um and then people that you never think would be your friend i'm kind of going through that right now with this podcast i've had friends in that are in the industry that i've had for years that i've never asked anything of ever like i've never asked anything of them and if anything like some of them, I've trained for free. Um, you know, I've I've helped them out when they've needed it in some way or another. And now that I have this podcast, I ask them. You know, I'm like, hey, would you would you want to come on as a guest? You know, and either crickets or I've had I a few of them completely like stop following me on Instagram, like. You know, and we had been friends for a long time. I ask one thing of them, and they just delete me from their life. And it's
1: interesting. And I don't know why people do that.
0: Yeah, and I'm like, oh my god, like. It's not like I just became your friend and I asked something of you right off the bat, you know? Like I've been your friend for a long time. I've never asked you for anything. I know people that have asked, I'm not gonna like drop names, but people have said, oh, you know, this person, can you get me a ticket to their show? Can you get me a ticket to their concert? Can you, you know, can you get them to do this or this? And I've never ever, I'm like, no, absolutely not. I'm not doing that. And so this is the first thing I've asked of them is just to come on as a guest and i'm like you know we're in the middle of a pandemic they you know they're at home maybe they'll be open to it and not only do they not reply they just like cut me out of their life i'm like oh okay and then there are some people that i would never think would say yes and they're like of course of course i would like come on um and it's, and it's interesting because a lot of these you know a a lot of these people i'm like, you should understand more than than anybody that in this town, it really is just who you know timing like it it has nothing to do with are you a better person than me do you, are you have more talent than me like they should know more than anybody that it's just they've struggled they've made it, and now you know that'll either like you were saying like it'll either change you for." you know, in a bad way, in a negative way, Mm. or you'll stay the same, and you'll just have this appreciation for life, and and like you were saying, Bill Burr will say, of course, like, why wouldn't I have known you for 25 years?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's, it's it's a mixed bag. I mean, going back to comedians, I think out of all the artists that exist in our industry, comedians, they're kind of the worst when it comes to social interaction and they're like just uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with stuff like that. I would say for you, the the reason why people are probably saying no to you um, is one of two things. They're either jealous um, of whatever you're doing Mm -hmm. um, or they are not intimidated, afraid that you're going to take a piece of their soul, you know, and they're, they don't want to give that up for free. That kind Mm. of thing. Like, I've had a couple comics say no to me because the money wasn't good enough.
0: Mm. And I'm
1: like, motherfucker, you're not working anyway. (laughs) Nothing's (laughs) open. Nothing's open, you know? Or, like, we'll do, They're like, you know, like, we want to do, like, a live stream, you know? Can we stream your comedy? No. I'm trying to save it for my special. Wait, for four years? (laughs) The material's going to be old. I just want to do this. and and it's weird and i've had um you know i've even had the good news is is i have a lot of comics that are reaching out to me so i don't really need anybody if you're funny great if you're funny and famous even better um i did have one comic who, who burned me right before the pandemic it was interesting we were supposed to start a show together and he just straight up like cut me out like a You know, we were very very shrewd and very, like, uh, not professional. And I just went, all right. You know, in the past, I used to argue with people and make it a whole, you know, that's bullshit. You you know, I used to to have this. I I always tell people I'm a a pretty good actor. I'm a horrible reactor. (laughs) You know, and I think reacting now that I'm getting older, I'm becoming more like, Zen like and not overreacting, just p- taking a pause, appreciating the answer that the person gave me, let it go and move on. And that's sorry, I don't expect. The- yeah,
0: <laughs> so she's like probably wanting to go out, but um, no, I, I agree. And I feel like the same when I was younger, I had like a, te- a temper, I would say, like, especially in relationships. But now, for example, with like the few people that have kind of like stop follow me or whatever. Another thing in this town is that people will be nice to your face and then talk shit behind your back or like, you know, like these people have done like stop following me or whatever and like hope I don't notice and just kind of stay quiet. And if I see them out and about, I am somebody who I've realized <laughs> as I get older, I'm not gonna react uh with words i'm just gonna act like you don't exist and so i like i just will like see them and they'll go oh hi and i just don't want to deal with the fakeness like don't say hi and act like we're fine when we both know and so i'll just ignore them and i'll just keep walking because i don't i don't want to give any fake energy back because I don't like that to me and so I don't want to act like everything's fine and say hi and I also now know what that person is about and I don't sure. really want to like take my time or energy to confront them so I'm just like whatever and I just I just keep going I don't know if that's yeah. healthy or not but that's how I've no, been dealing I, with things recently
1: <laughs> I, think, I think that's the healthiest way to approach it because what are you going to do try to entangle them and you know and you're going to try to blame them and point like if the person isn't taking accountability for anything um, you know, Hey, I said something bad about you. I want to say, I'm sorry. You didn't deserve that or, or whatever it is. But if they're being fake about it, that's a different um, story. And I also believe that silence is power. So not not saying anything kind of lets people know you're not on my diet anymore.
0: You know, right. I'm, I'm, exactly. not
1: in, I'm not interested in that kind of meal. Um, there was a comic he's not even a comic he's the guy i was telling you who kind of burned me right before the pandemic he um he had uh when our venice shows which you got to come to sometime
0: yes i would love
1: to when our venice show started getting hot um i started getting bookers from like vegas and orange county not bookers uh, uh venue owners Saying hey, I see you're booking this awesome comedy show, and we have a space in Vegas. You know, do you want to come do it there? Comedy Compound in Vegas, Comedy Compound Huntington Beach, which is branching off the brand. I said, absolutely. So I started taking on all these other venues and kind of becoming like a talent buyer, booker, which I never thought I would be, but I, I like playing chess and booking people and, you know, giving comics work. It's, it makes me feel good um, if they appreciate that. it. But then these people start going to the venue owners in Vegas or in whatever city and saying, hey, we want to do a show on your thing. And, the, and they're like, well, Ahmed Ahmed's already doing it. And they would say, yeah, well, fuck that guy. We can do it better. And then they're like, oh, I don't think so. Goodbye. And then they'll call me up and say, do you know so-and-so? I'm like, yeah. They said this, that, and the other thing about you. And I told them to fuck off. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> because I didn't have to do it.
0: Right. Well, wouldn't it be interesting if after all these years and the comedians that have kind of made it impossible for you to to be at this club or the other club if you just became like the next big like Laugh Factory or Comedy Store and just your venues are and and it kind of the tables got turned that be
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not necessarily doing it for that reason. Um it just kind of happens to it's well, starting just... to just like turn into that Mm -hmm. um i had a comic reach out to me a few weeks ago and he was like hey um i heard you're running this show in venice my friend bought a ticket to go see eliza schlesinger i was going to come to the show i hope that's okay i wanted to uh, when you get a chance when you call me i want to clear the air with you Mm -hmm. um and I texted him back, and I said, "You cleared the air when you burned me." Mm. I said, "I'm I'm good. I can breathe now. I don't." I said, "But if you bought a ticket and you're a paying customer, feel free come to the show." But I'm not. I don't want need to have a conversation with you. And I wish you the best. But I was it. Mm. and uh, and he replied with, "You know, thank you." He he didn't show up to the show actually. Oh, he
0: didn't. But,
1: no, I, I think kind of killing people with kindness is my new mantra yeah you know even if and i get i have a temper and i get bad at things and i get frustrated and i like to shoot my mouth off here and there but um i try to just either ignore like you do mm-hmm. or just um just take a deep breath and say you know i wish you the best you know on your journey and right who knows like never say never you know mm-hmm. i've i've had ex-girlfriends that i thought i'd never get back together with and we did some weird way you know the universe kind of brought us back together like sat us next to a rest a table at a restaurant like that kind of weird shit
0: yeah that happened
1: one time i was in a restaurant after i was dating a girl for a few years and we broke up and I hadn't talked to her for six months. Seen her, talked to her, called her, nothing. I just went radio silent. So did she. And she ended up sitting in a booth right next to me and my friends at this table with her friends. Mm-hmm. And the booth had, you know, high, like
0: oh, chair. Yeah. yeah.
1: So you couldn't see who was in the booth. Mm-hmm. But she had gone to the women's restroom, and one of the girls that I was that was in our group had also gone to the women's restroom at the same time and she was like oh my god hey because they knew each other yeah and she was like who are you here with she's like i'm here with my friends who are you here with she's like i'm actually here with ahmed and his friends and she was like oh (laughs) you should come over and say hi and she's like no i don't know so anyway she ended up coming over and um said hi and that's kind of like is what brought us back together and it was a brief reunited you know situation um but i just thought it was weird that maybe there was like closure that had to happen there i think sometimes the universe will align things and people for you to have some sort of closure um yeah. <laughs>
0: I've,
1: I've come from to the to the belief that you find closure with you don't okay. really need to seek it out. No one's, no one's ever going to give you closure. Well, I'm never going I'll never call Joe Rogan and be <coughs> like, "Fuck you." And right. I've never, I've never confronted him to this day about it, and I never will.
0: Well, I think but I've like a, about, but, about
1: podcasts.
0: yeah, I think. Um, <coughs> I, I'm sorry, she's like way so crazy. Um, I think that you know during COVID, I I read a book called The Four Agreements. And I don't know if you've read it, but I think the main takeaway that I took away from it was that you can't take things so personally because it's typically not about you at all. It's about them, whether it be jealousy or insecurity or whatever it is. um, Whatever happens to you from that somebody else does to you, or it's most likely not about you. So just as long as you're impeccable with your word as long as, you know, like you're just worried about yourself and you don't really, like if something happens to you, just know that it's not personal. It's their stuff. It's not your stuff. Um, It's really helped me a lot, I think, when it comes to stuff like that with relationships, with things like, you know, I had a relationship that ended recently where, um, you know, in the beginning he said, you know, yes, I'll, i'll move we were a little long distance and he's like i will move tomorrow to be with you i will yes 100 percent. if it gets to that point of marriage like i will be here and he wasn't impeccable with his word i read this book and i'm like you're not being but he like can change his mind it came time to like okay we've been together for eight months like what are we doing and he's like yeah i can't move there would you move here um kind of turn it on me almost like well you're gonna let this relationship go if you don't move here well no I was honest from day one, you're the one not being honest. If you can't move here, then we have to be done. He's like, well, I can't move there. My life is here. Okay. Okay. I I didn't get upset. I just said, okay, this is it. It, it is what it is. Um, I can't, it's not about me. It's not like I, he didn't love me enough. It's not like I am not good enough. I didn't look at it that way at all. He didn't make me feel that way. It was just it was him it was his personal stuff he chose to stay with his family with his career and that was sure. all it was i could have very easily and back in the day i would have said oh my god like he lied or he didn't like love me enough or i wasn't enough you know and and it really had nothing to do with me and i think living that way has like been very zen for me recently like just realizing and it's just with past stuff that i've yeah you know, dealt with. It's- you
1: seem like you seem like you have a really good zen thing going. Thank you, I mean, <laughs> thank you. It's funny because we never we've never even met in person. No, we've never
0: met in person.
1: But I feel like it's I crazy. know you because I watched your, oh, you on Instagram and stuff. But um, but um, I mean, you've always seemed like you've had a calm zen vibe about you. But I feel like right now you're in your zone
0: but thank you for saying that i am in a very good place i see a holistic doctor every week i have a hypnotherapist i you know i'm just all the things like i go to church it's like no one understands me i'm like you know a (laughs) rare breed but i think all of the things that i'm doing the books that i'm reading the things that i do every day um and then just like you know working out obviously and Mm -hmm. it it all kind of goes hand in hand and um I think that right now I'm in just a really good place of, um, also just not having. I don't know about about you, but but I had this I guess idea of how my life was going to be, which is not that way at all. And I am finally at peace with it, and actually like very um, happy that I am where I am because. Um, sometimes I realize that what i what I think might make me happy actually you know I don't think actually would. I'm starting to realize that now, like why hasn't this worked out or that worked out? and I'm like, well, maybe it wasn't meant to. maybe I would have gotten those things, and I wouldn't have been happy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I am just kind of going with the flow and just really appreciating life for today. if this is all it is, and the world stopped tomorrow, then I would be fine. I love my life right now, and I think um, a lot of people wait to um, wait to, to, until this happens, and then I can do this like I used to say i 'm going to wait until i 'm in a relationship before I get a dog because i don 't want to take on that by myself. I want to wait to travel until i 'm with someone or married or I want to wait to buy a house i 'm going to wait to do this so, um, I'm going to wait till the pandemic's over to start this podcast. I used I to want to wait um, for everything. And and so recently I'm like, you know what? What am I waiting for? I'm going to get the dog because I want a dog. I'm going to start yeah. traveling. I'm going to start the podcast because we have technology, you know? And so yeah. starting to say yes to a lot of things and um, I'm planning on traveling soon. It's like I want to just live life and stop like waiting, you know? And I think that as, you know, society we're taught that we're supposed to do things a certain way. Like you were saying, you're supposed to be a doctor or whatever your parents wanted you to be. And um, I was supposed to get married at 25 and have babies. And, and um, I even see it on my three-year-old niece. She's like, she's like, do I have to get married? And I'm like, you don't have to get married, but I'm a girl. So I have to get married. I'm like, that doesn't mean you have to get married. She's like, do I have to marry a boy. And I'm like, I mean, you don't <laughs> have to, but if you want, she's like very into that, like figuring things out. And I'm like, well, that's where it starts is like then you have this idea of how your life is supposed to be when really there's no way it's supposed to be. And if we stop fighting it and just let life happen, I feel like we'd be a lot more zen. <laughs> That's like where yeah, I'm at no, right
1: now. No, you, you hit it you hit it right on the money. It's like uh like Bruce Lee says, be like Walta.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know. You have to just yep. kinda go with the flow. Everybody should have a plan. Everybody should have aspirations and passion, but Of course. Uh, yeah. Sometimes life, you know, make takes a left turn and you just gotta go go with the flow and mm-hmm. um but I do believe in everything you're saying is like reading the right books and exercise and meditation and whatever spiritual, you know, spirituality you're into, whether it's religion or Buddhism or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever you're into. Mm-hmm. And um, the last thing you mentioned, um, you know, activation, you know, being proactive, being able to just say you know what i'm not gonna wait for this person i'm just gonna go and do it whether it's a friend a mate a business situation just get up and go do it Mm. when i started this comedy club in venice beach i never thought i'd you know i mean i don't really even perform on it that much i kind of just do the housekeeping but i'm more like booking it but i go up on stage and i kind of just break down the rules and thanks for coming and let's bring up the host. But mm-hmm. um, I save my comedy for when I go on the road. But had I not started this comedy show, I don't know what I'd be doing, mm-hmm. but that's activated so many There's different so many opportunities. Things. Like people are calling me, mm-hmm. which is a, it's a great position to be in. I don't have to really pick up the phone or reach out to comedians or um, other venues and, and buyers and, you know, Even it's funny, like even managers and agents are calling me and stuff now. I'm just like, which I don't like dealing with, but um, it's a good position to be in, and it's it's a good problem to have. Mm -hmm. Um, But if I was sitting around, dwelling, depressed, waiting for the Mm -hmm. phone to ring,
0: yeah, that's when
1: that's when implosion happens, Mm -hmm. and that's when people self destruct.
0: One hundred percent. Yep. So where do you? just see yourself going next. Is there like a, a plan that you have or um, like you were saying to take this to different venues? Is that like your main focus now that things are kind of opening back up a little bit? Um, what's yeah, your, I mean, on the career
1: side, on the career side, um, I'm just going to ride this like comedy wave that's reopening yeah. um, back up whether it's producing shows uh, and or touring. Um, There's a couple of stuff that I have in the pipeline just as a comic that I'll go do um, tours and whatnot uh, domestically and internationally. Um, I feel like our our Venice comedy compound is, it's a nice little gem. It's a nice little 60 seat outdoor venue. Um, It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, but at the, the payoff is worth it, mm-hmm. so I'm just going to kind of focus on that. But I also have a couple of TV shows and a movie, and some things that, on the entertainment side, kind of television wise, I want to continue to develop and, and try to sell. Um, maybe direct my next movie or documentary, but um, on the personal side, really just kind of get my body, mind, and soul. In sync with exercise and meditation and rest, um, trying to, you know, try new things, challenge myself, you know, face my fears, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I I think sitting around being stagnant, um, it's like the devil's work. You know, it's just like somebody told me a really funny saying um, when you don't get out of bed every day, the devil's doing his job. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) You know, I get up every morning, make my coffee, make the bed, brush my teeth. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a, it's consistency and discipline. Yeah. And if you not that, and um I think, like, you know, on the friendship tip, I've been pretty concise and confined with my existing friends. Um, every once in a while, you know, if I really like somebody's energy and their soul, mm-hmm. I'll I'll you know, make it an effort to, to create a friendship with them. But, um, I feel like people's motives these days, they're just not coming from a good place all the time. Mm -hmm. So you never know who's trying to be your friend, what they want. Well, they might want something from you or, you know, they need a, 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 you know, like you said, a, a, a ticket to a thing or a phone call or a connection or whatever. It's just like, let's just be friends and the business stuff will come later. And then I think on the, the romance side of things, and you probably know this, you know, more than, (laughs) than a lot of us is, you know, the dating scene in LA can be tough and it's a really kind of tricky road to navigate. Um, So I've just been kind of like open to, you know me i've been single for a long time so i've just been enjoying being single but open to that partnership mm-hmm. if it uh if it's out there and it, and it exists and it's all about law of attraction you know what are you mm-hmm. attracting how much do you love yourself when you love yourself other people love you and 100%. that whole thing yeah yep. so just being kind of being happy in my you know during the pandemic i spent a lot of time When I lived in Asia, I spent a lot of time alone. I taught myself how to cook. I tried new things. I started riding my bike, you know, down. I I mean, I always ride my bike, but I started Mm -hmm. riding it down to like Manhattan Beach and back and just doing that little bike, that little coastal ride and and doing it alone. (laughs) Because I can just hear my thoughts, talk to myself. Yeah. Um, And just really kind of enjoying my independence. I I see some of my friends who have kids and a lovely family and and family and beautiful kids for that matter. Mm -hmm. I also see how taxing it can be Mm -hmm. to have children. And I would never want to bring a human being into the world with a partner that I didn't have that 100% connection with. You know, a lot of people are just like you said society in the book says you need to get married you have to have kids you have to buy a house right you don't have to do yeah house. and
0: i'm on that same page i was uh talking about this i and i you know i feel the same exact way and i've seen too many marriages end because they felt pressure that that was the next step in their life and they weren't truly in love and then they brought kids into the world and And then that made it more intense for them and harder for them in their marriage. And then it doesn't work out. And now these kids are, you know, I mean, it happens all the, all the time, obviously divorce and like kids will be fine, but, but it does like, it's hard on them. And I have always told myself, I will never get married unless I just felt like this is somebody I couldn't live without. And, and, I wanted to be with them, and they wanted to be with me, and we could, you know, create together whatever that looks like or what that means. And there would be a purpose, not just you know, like this is the next step and we've been together for this long, so I guess we'll get married. Like I've just never, that's just never worked for me. So, um, so I a hundred percent agree with what, what you say. And it's just, um, as long as you're open to it and you just love yourself and know what you're worth, I, I think that it'll just like come when it's, when it's the time, you know? Yeah.
1: And I, and I, I think, uh, going back to the whole, you know, laws of attraction, it's like, really kind of putting it out there without being eager or desperate, but Mm -hmm. like making your intentions clear with the universe. I I read a book a while back. What was it called? I forgot. I forgot the name of the book. It was a long time ago, but basically talked about how the universe is like a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And when you go into a restaurant, you get the menu and you look at the menu and you place your order. So you place your order with the universe. You know, this yeah. year I'd like to have X, Y, and Z. Right. But what you want may not be on the menu.
0: Right.
1: So you get the alternative
0: thing. Mm-hmm. You know, do
1: you want salmon or steak? You're like, You kind of have to be really descriptive and specific about it. Mm-hmm. Because the universe is, it's a powerful thing that hold, you know, uh, magnetic, you know, telecommunicate, like all the, all the, um, the energies that are kind of flowing, good or bad, you know, I feel like you, it's easy to, to kind of receive them and pick them up. And um, and I've been, like I said, famous and guilty for both. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, I'm just grateful. You know, every day is a new day. And I try to just, you know, even when, I, when I'm in a bad mood or wake up a little cranky or not feeling 100%, I I really like have to trick myself to get in a good mood, mm-hmm. kind of like faking it till you make yeah. it,
0: yeah. a little bit.
1: Force myself to smile. Yeah, you know, force my say say in my head, "Hey, you're beautiful. I love you know I love myself." Mm-hmm. You have to because how how many people a day are saying that to you? Exactly. You know, sometimes not.
0: <laughs> sometimes <laughs> you know. not. it's true. I mean,
1: sometimes yeah. you'll get likes on your social media or cool comment or heart or whatever that's fine but how many people are actually calling you every day mm-hmm. saying you're beautiful you're great i love you it's, it's not common yeah so you have to kind of be your own self reminder i, I
0: think and uh 100 yeah
1: yeah that's what about you what's,
0: yeah what's i'm good like? um so yeah just uh well as far as now just things are opening back up clients are coming back. New clients are coming into my life. Um, this dog, which I had need to take out or she's going to go crazy. She probably needs to go to the bathroom, but we're working on the potty training right now. Um, so yeah, just dealing with that. Um, seeing family a lot more. I'm hoping to start traveling soon. I have friends in Scotland that I haven't seen in a while and I've never been to Scotland and I've always wanted to go and I've wanted You'll to go it. around Europe and I want to go to Italy because that's where my family on my dad's side is originally from. And so oh, nice. I'm uh, planning a trip to go out there and see, you know, my friends that I haven't seen in a while and then just travel around. And now, you know, that I've been in this pandemic for so long and realized that I could still work over facetime and zoom and still and travel a little bit i'm like all right it's on like i could still work a little bit travel like i'm Mm -hmm. i'm really excited about it so um but yeah just just that really i mean i uh as far as like dating goes like it's not a huge priority right now i have gone out on a, a few dates here and there um but you know and and then we'll wrap up. I'm sorry. We're taking forever, but, um, but I, I mean, I could talk to you forever, but, um, but I really, um, it's interesting. It used to be like, I think when I wasn't so self-aware, um, and so, you know, just, I guess mature, like, or the person I am today, I, I six pack and a smile would do it for me. Like, and now, <laughs> and now that doesn't, it's, I need a way more than that. And so dating in LA is very interesting because it's, um, me trying to find someone that like is on the same level spiritually and, um, and emotionally as, as me, and then also being physically attracted to them, and then having the same type of lifestyle, because I do go to bed early, I get up early for work, um, I'm very active, I eat healthy, and so finding somebody that has all those things that are driven, that are successful in some some way, um, doing what they're passionate about, I, I tend to go for more creative people, because I uh, am a creative person, and I feel like Just the typical, not that there's anything wrong with it, but for me, someone who has just a nine to five that they're not really passionate about, that they don't, that they come home and they're just grumpy all the time, like that doesn't do it for me. So, but finding somebody that has all those things that aren't a narcissist, that's hard in this town. And so, um, I'm just, you know, like living life. And if somebody comes in, that fits what I'm looking for, then great. And if not, then that's fine too. I am, I am really at a place right now where I'm really happy with, with, you know, what I have. And so I think that that's just the most important thing. And um, finally going to travel. I think I'm just looking forward to that and getting everything in order to do that. So that, the dog work. Um, right. And then I also have like the clothing line that I'm working on, and then just oh, nice. the podcast. And so, so yeah. And I have to come check out your comedy. Uh, come come your, this your comedy this show. I will definitely, well, I won't be around this weekend, but if you have something, because it's Easter weekend, I'm going home, but next oh, weekend, okay, yeah. I would love to come check it out. And thank you for taking the time to come on. I have. Loved this. I could talk to you forever.
1: Let's do it again. Let's do it yes, again sometime.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Thank you Thank so you. much. My and pleasure. I look forward to meeting you in person.
1: Let's grab coffee or do a bike ride. I'm right down the road.
0: Definitely. Let's do it. Let's set it Let up. Know. awesome Thank you so much. We'll talk Thank to you, you
1: dear. Best talk of luck.
0: Soon. Thank you. You too. Bye.